You're listening to the Grow Your Own Food Podcast, a show dedicated to helping you grow fresh fruit, vegetables, and even grains in your own backyard. In every episode, you'll get growing tips, recipe inspiration, and more. Ready to get growing? Then let's jump in. friends, welcome to episode 48 of the Grow Your Own Food podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Smith, and today we are not talking about plants that produce food. Rather, we are talking about flowers that serve as good companions and sometimes even good guardians for those food-producing plants, those plants that produce vegetables, fruits, and herbs, and they are going to be good for a bunch of different reasons. So I'm going to go over my favorite things to plant. It's not an exhaustive list of all the flowers that you can grow in your garden, just my favorite ones, and I'm going to be going over the various reasons why they're my favorite ones in this episode. So that's what we're talking about today, but first, a word from our sponsor. So when I first started out gardening, I was really, really bad about trying to do it as efficiently as possible, which means I dedicated absolutely zero space in my garden my first few years to flowers. And the longer I'm at it, the more I have been incorporating flowers into my vegetable garden. And I have just enjoyed such a huge improvement, both in terms of pollination for the vegetables that require it. So things like cucumbers, any type of squash, and then also just watching the sort of diversity of insects and birds and things like that that come to my garden. It's been really, really fun to watch. So I think it's really important for beginning gardeners to understand and sort of start to think about gardening from a holistic perspective. Even if you are gardening for the purposes of growing your own food, I think that it's it's definitely important to think about gardening through this lens. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about all these flowers today. So I will say that there are lots of articles, lots of podcasts out there that talk about adding flowers to your garden. But the thing that I have learned that I've been really frustrated with over the years is that none of them really talk about growth habit. And I have had to learn the hard way which ones are really good for small gardens, which ones are better for larger gardens, which ones you should never plant in your vegetable garden. They should only be planted as a border or in a container. And which ones, you know, kind of have some nefarious, shall we say, qualities to them. So I've tried to organize this episode in that way to kind of tell you which flowers are good for small to medium to large size gardens. And then also tell you about any special notes, any watch outs, things that you should be aware of before you try to start growing them in your garden. So with all that said we will get started. So the very first flower that I will talk about is probably one of the sweetest, loveliest little flowers out there, and it's called sweet alyssum. It's a very small flower. In fact, a lot of people grow it as a ground cover. It only gets about 
six to eight inches tall and really about only eight inches tall when it doesn't get enough light and it has to get kind of leggy and stretch its stems out but it creates kind of just like these cloud-like little clusters of tiny little blossoms and they give off an incredibly sweet perfume and they're absolutely lovely they attract several beneficial insects including lace wings and parasitic wasps so parasitic wasps sounds like nightmare fuel, but it's actually a really good thing. Parasitic wasps lay their eggs on things like tomato hornworms, which eat up all your tomatoes, and those eggs hatch and they eat the tomato hornworm. Not good for the tomato hornworm, but good for you and your tomatoes in your garden. Sweet alyssum also attracts fireflies and fireflies lay their eggs on the flowers and the larva hatches and that firefly larva actually feeds on slugs. So sweet alyssum, very, very good thing to have in a small garden for helping you control the pest population. The next type of flower that I would recommend for a small garden is called bachelor's buttons. They're also known as cornflowers and they're like these cheerful little clusters of tissue paper. They have like these ragged edges, this sort of perfectly imperfect look. They're often used as a decorative element in cocktails because the flowers are edible and they attract a lot of bees. So again, they only get about six to eight inches tall. They're not very big. They also attract ladybugs, which prey on aphid, scale bugs, and mealybug larvae. They attract lacewings, which eat adult aphids, white flies, mealybugs, and mites. And bachelor's buttons also attract parasitic wasps like sweet alyssum does. The third flower in my list of flowers that are good for a small garden is nasturtium. So nasturtium is on the smaller side. It can get to about medium side because the leaves have a tendency to like vine out and ramble, but they don't grow through the roots underground. Very, very easy to pull up at the end of the season and honestly serve almost kind of like a natural mulch, right? Those leaves kind of spread everywhere and they shade the soil underneath it. So to me, they're honestly, it's kind of a beneficial thing. It's one of my favorite flowers these days to grow in the vegetable garden. It keeps away a ton of pests, including cucumber beetles, squash bugs. I'm using it in my battle against the squash bugs this year. No, I have not given up. I will never give up the battle against the squash bugs. I have a lot of tricks up my sleeve that I'm going to try. They are also said to be helpful in keeping away slugs and cabbage moths and they repel rabbits which is funny because nasturtiums are edible their leaves and their flowers are, are edible for humans they have like this peppery flavor that goes really well in salads but you can also use the flowers to decorate cocktails and I will say that they reproduce, they produce seeds in the weirdest way. So if you have kids who are listening to this um, and they don't know the birds and the bees, maybe earmuffs on them. But if you lift up the plant, once flowering has been going on for a decent amount of time, if you lift up the plant, you will kind of see this little dangling seed purse underneath and it's almost kind of like a set of testicles I have to tell you the first time that I discovered it I I giggled like a little eight-year-old but it's 
really the strangest way that I have seen for a flower to produce seeds, and it's really different and really cool. So this is a great plant, a great flower to have in the garden, nasturtiums. It hugs the ground and kind of spills its beautiful leaves and flowers everywhere. Again, one of my favorites, very useful. The last flower on my list for small gardens would be poppies. So poppies kind of range in the small to medium sized flower category. So I think they still work well in a small garden. They don't produce nectar, so they're not incredibly beneficial for butterflies, but they do produce a ton of pollen, which makes them a magnet for bees. And if you grow the bread seed poppy, Papaver somniferum is its Latin name, it produces seeds that can be collected for use in baked goods like lemon poppy seed bread and all that kind of delicious sort of thing, everything bagel seasoning. But I will say that those seeds are the only edible thing about that type of poppy. Everything else about that type of poppy is toxic, both to humans and animals. So if you have kiddos that roam around the garden and like to stick things in their mouths, or if you have animals that roam around the garden, like dogs and cats, on a regular basis, maybe think twice before you grow bread seed poppy in the garden. So those are my recommendations for things to grow in a small garden as far as favorite flowers. So sweet alyssum, bachelor buttons, nasturtium, and poppies. So I'm going to be moving on to sort of medium-sized flowers that are really great to grow in maybe a slightly larger garden. You know, they're okay to grow in a garden bed it's not going to be detrimental to anything that you're growing but it is going to take up a decent amount of space so calendula is a flower that would fall into this category and to me there's nothing more cheerful than a calendula it's also called a pot marigold and it is related to the marigold so it does sort of repel a decent amount of pests just like marigolds do in the garden. It does also have some soothing properties for various skin conditions. So things like rashes, burns, things like that. I'm actually really, really excited to try to make a homemade moisturizer with calendula infused oil this season. And I will let you know how that goes and put a recipe up on the blog at beandbasil.com if it turns out really well. I will say that calendula can attract pests. Some people like to classify it as what's called a trap crop, meaning that it will attract certain pests away from your vegetable plants to the calendula plant sort of on purpose, like bait almost. So they do attract things like aphids and thrips, but they also attract things like ladybugs, lacewings, and hoverflies that eat aphids and thrips. So depending on your garden and how much of a problem you have, it could all balance out in the end. Calendula does get, I would say, about 18 to 24 inches tall. It's not the biggest flower, but it's not the smallest flower either. And honestly, the more you cut flowers from it, which it makes a beautiful cut flower, the more 
the blooms kind of pop up. So if you're not wanting it to be terribly big, maybe don't harvest a ton from them. The next flower in this sort of medium to medium large category that you can grow in your vegetable beds if you want to is called Cosmos. It's an annual and it's really low maintenance. It doesn't mind poor soil. So you can, you know, you can grow them in your garden beds with your really good soil, but you can also put them in a less than perfect area of your yard and they will be perfectly fine. They don't mind drought. They don't really attract many pests. I have mine planted out just like in the yard this year. The rabbits have totally left it alone. They attract a ton of bees and butterflies, and they also bring in a bunch of predatory beneficial insects like lacewings and parasitic wasps, which we've talked about, as well as tachinid flies and hoverflies. They grow all these airy, simple tissue paper-like flowers, and they grow them for months on end, and they look great in vases, these flowers do. And just like calendula, they are really similar in that the more that you harvest the flowers, the more they seem to just like explode in bloom. So once the plant matures and gets going, it's just absolutely, it's, a, it's around for months and it's absolutely beautiful. While many varieties do get pretty tall, like two to three feet tall, they do have shorter ground hugging varieties of cosmos that you can grow. So that's why I've put it sort of in this medium category because you can get shorter varieties that won't sort of block out the sun and take over your whole vegetable garden bed. So I just have those two varieties that are sort of in that medium classification, but they, like I said, they bloom in profusion and they're absolutely wonderful to have in the garden. These next ones, I would say plant with caution or plant them as a border to your vegetable garden. I don't recommend having them in your garden bed because they can get really large or they can spread really aggressively, but they offer so many great things that I had to include them anyway. So the first one would be bee balm, which is also known as Monarda and is also also known as wild bergamot. So that's not the same as the bergamot that flavors your Earl Grey tea. That is actually orange bergamot. Wild bergamot is different but it's still a wonderful flower to grow in the garden. As the name bee balm would suggest, it attracts bees, but it also attracts hummingbirds. And honestly, who doesn't love seeing hummingbirds ever? I'm obsessed with them personally. It also provides a perfect environment for lacewings to lay their eggs. And that lacewing larva feasts on lots of different garden pests and parasites like aphids and mites. And Monarda also has some beneficial herbal qualities. So I use it to brew an herbal preparation to soothe bloating and cramps whenever I have PMS. I will say it's not recommended for pregnant women, but it does have some herbal applications that are really, really interesting. A big, big, big word of warning for bee balm is that it spreads like crazy via roots underground. So I don't, like I said, recommend growing it in your garden. I had to learn that the hard way, dig it out and plant it in a container. I'm sure I still haven't gotten all of it and I'm sure I'm going to be digging it out for probably at least another year, but I did my best. 
and it's growing happily in a container. It took off within like a couple of weeks. So I will say it grows perfectly fine in a container. If you don't want to grow it in a container, also totally fine. Make sure you grow it then at a border or somewhere where you're not really worried about it spreading into your vegetable beds. Finally, bee balm is perennial, so it will come back every year, and that's why you do have to be careful with it spreading, is because it comes back, it stays alive even through the cold. You don't have to replant it, which is great, but that means it does not kind of like die back on its own. It'll kind of die down to the ground, but over winter, it'll kind of invisibly spread under the dirt. All of its roots will kind of be at work. Then you won't see it. And then in the spring, you'll be like, oh my gosh, this is a problem. The next thing on my list that you kind of have to be careful with, but I so, so very much recommend it for bees especially, is borage. I've talked a little bit about borage before. It is an incredible pollinator plant. It is something that self-sows very easily. And by that, I mean that seeds develop and drop and germinate incredibly fast. So that is something that you do have to watch out for. If you choose to grow it in the vegetable garden, you are going to be forever plucking the little seedlings, germinated seedlings out of the soil. I honestly grow borage in my vegetable garden beds, and I do this for two reasons. One, I don't mind picking the tiny little seedlings out of the dirt constantly. I'm in there weeding all the time anyway. It's not a big deal. Two, I have never seen such content pollinators as I have on borage plants. It's just amazing to me, and I love watching all of the bees, and it's so good for my squash plants and my cucumber plants. I always grow my borage around my squash and cucumber and um, melons also, just to help with pollination. Three, and this is my last thing, and I'll get off my borage soapbox. Um, borage is known as an accumulator, a biodynamic accumulator. So I'm going to go into this in detail in a future episode, but biodynamic accumulators are really, really good at taking up high amounts of certain nutrients from the soil. A lot of it from deeper levels of the soil than what your average vegetable plants and herbs and things like that can usually access. Even though they need it, their roots just don't grow that deeply. They can't get to it. So something that's really nice about borage is that you can, when you go prune it back, because it can get out of control. If you prune it back to keep it under control, you can kind of just toss that down in the vegetable bed, kind of like sandwich it, uh, you know, between the soil underneath the mulch to help it break down faster. And it'll release all those nutrients that it has taken up down into the soil at a, at a much more shallow level that, you know, your vegetable plants can take up. Borage leaves and flowers are edible. They make the prettiest cocktail garnishes. They have these gorgeous indigo star-shaped flowers that are so delicate and so pretty. I have frozen them in ice cubes before. Like I said, I cannot sing Borage's praises enough. Just a few things that you have to watch out for. Next on the list for large kind of things that you probably don't want to plant in the garden is echinacea. 
Echinacea is a perennial, so it does like to spread just like bee balm does. You've probably heard of echinacea before. You can find it in capsule form in the pharmacy in the immune support section. That's why it's one of my favorite things to grow in the garden. I don't just grow it to attract pollinators, but also for its herbal sort of soothing immune support qualities. It's native to Eastern and Central North America. So those of you who are listening to the podcasts that are in Eastern and Central North America, echinacea is something that's really, really great to grow near your garden in a border or in your yard because native plant, any native plant is going to be very, very beneficial for the pollinators in your area. They've relied on them for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So they're going to be kind of like genetically predispositioned toward that plant. So bees, butterflies, anything like that. If you live in Eastern and Central North America, echinacea is going to be well loved in your garden. Echinacea is also incredibly low maintenance. It's drought tolerant, heat tolerant. They bloom for months on end. And like I said, they're perennial in zones three to nine. So they come back every year on their own. One more added benefit is that birds love coneflowers, love echinacea flowers. Um, Once the seeds ripen on the tops of the flowers, you'll see these tiny little finches and chickadees and other cute little birds will actually come and land on the flowers because they're they're fairly big flowers and they're very sturdy they'll sit on top of the flower and just eat away at the mature seeds so if you have started to become a little bit of a bird watcher like myself and many other gardeners i know um, then echinacea is going to be something that you're going to enjoy growing Asters are incredible. They're a member of the daisy family. They can get rather large and they are annual. So you do have to plant them every year. But they are serious workhorses when it comes to providing pollen for bees and butterflies. They also attract hoverflies. The great thing about asters, in my opinion, is that they still bloom well into fall when all the other flowers have kind of like given up for the season and gone to bed. Asters do get on the bigger side, like I said, depending on the variety, they can get like up to three feet tall and two feet wide. It is possible to find like a dwarf variety or variety that grows lower and smaller. So if you want to grow asters in your garden and you have a smaller garden, I would say just make sure that you look for a smaller variety. Next, and this would be the next to last flower, would be zinnia. So I grow zinnias because I love dahlias, um, but dahlias are really, really expensive. I think a single dahlia bulb costs like $9, and I just can't bring myself to spend that much on a single flower bulb. Zinnia reminds me a lot of dahlia flowers because they have these really pretty, neat geometric petals. Pollinators love them and they keep tomato hornworms and cucumber beetles away and they also attract predatory wasps. I had butterflies all over my zinnias last year and as well just like with purple coneflowers with echinacea small birds like sparrows and finches they will perch on the top of a mature or kind of wilted zinnia flower where the seeds have matured and just kind of snack away on the seeds and it's the cutest zinnias make amazing cut flowers 
And they're a lot like calendula and cosmos in that the more flowers you harvest from them, the more flowers they seem to grow. I'm able to get several bouquets of them through the summer from just two or three zinnia plants. I will say zinnias do get easily three to four feet tall by about two feet wide. There might be some varieties out there of zinnias that don't get that big, but I honestly, I don't have any experience growing or looking for smaller varieties. All I can tell you is what I have grown so far. And those get pretty big, out of control. Had to learn the hard way that they aren't the best thing to grow in the vegetable garden bed. My very, very last flower that I recommend growing near your garden or on the border of your garden, but never, ever, 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 ever in your garden bed would be sunflowers. So as you know, sunflowers are large to extra, extra large. They are an annual, but they provide an enormous amount of pollen to bees. And if you grow them as a border plant, they're so tall that they can give the plants in your garden some afternoon shade. And if you get the right variety, you can get edible seeds out of the deal. It is important to know that sunflowers are allelopathic. Now, that is a big scientific word that means that their roots give off toxins that inhibit the growth of nearby plants so that the sunflowers can get all the nutrients and space to themselves. It's a little bit greedy, but it's very clever, you have to admit, in terms of like survival. That's why you should never, never, never plant sunflowers in the garden. I made the mistake doing this. I tried to plant sunflowers a few years ago in my at the back of my corn bed, and the corn and the sweet potatoes that were planted closest to the sunflowers absolutely failed to thrive. So I would say only grow them as a border or somewhere out in your yard. They can be really good, you know, if you as a strategic way to suppress the growth of other things in your yard. If you are looking to keep other things down, like we had to dig out all of the daylilies. Ugh, don't ever plant daylilies in your yard. They spread like crazy. They're incredibly invasive. And I am actually growing sunflowers this year where we dug all of the daylilies out to try and kill off and inhibit the growth of any more daylilies that want to try and pop up that we missed that are down there in the soil somewhere. Not all sunflowers produce pollen. So the sunflowers that you would grow purely for the purpose of cut flowers, they don't produce pollen. So they're pretty, but they're not going to be beneficial for any bees or butterflies, and they're not going to produce edible seeds for you or for the birds. So if you want sunflowers for pollinators, or you want them for edible seeds, make sure when you are looking at the different varieties of sunflowers that you order a kind that a variety that offers those features. Okay, you guys, that was a lot. If you need to, you can always find the sister post for this podcast episode on the blog at beeandbasil.com. You'll find the link to this particular blog in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so very much for listening. In the next episode, I'm really excited about it because 
I'm going to be talking about herbs that you can grow to make your own tea. So I grow several things in my garden, which technically it's not tea. It's called a tisane because it's really only tea if it's from the Camilla sinensis plant. So black tea, green tea, white tea, oolong, jasmine, that kind of thing. Drinks that you make with herbs from your garden are technically tisanes. But for the purposes of simplicity, we're just going to call them tea. And I'm going to be talking about all the different kinds of things that you can grow in your garden to make your own tea at home. So that's what I'm going to be talking about in the next episode. Until then, thank you so very much. Hopefully we have all the cold, yucky weather out of the way. It's been a long haul getting here, but I'm excited and I hope you are too. And I hope that your garden is growing beautifully. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Grow Your Own Food podcast. Visit beeandbasil.com for helpful how-to articles, images, and recipes.